You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you have your Bibles and if you would then turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 32. Um, We've been in the Gospel of Mark on Wednesday nights, and uh, so I figured that we would just stay in Mark for this week. We didn't have Wednesday night this past past Wednesday, Um, but uh, I figured we'd just uh, continue here. So Mark, chapter 15, we'll be reading... Uh, Mark's account of uh, much of what Ken read earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. As we'll be thinking about the fact that Pilate had ordered for Christ to be scourged and crucified, uh, I'd like to read here what Chip Thornton in his article entitled The Physical Death of Jesus says about these things. He says, Scourging was a violent Roman torture intended to weaken the victim with trauma and blood loss. It was done in different ways, but often the victim was tied, arms extended, to an upright post. Two Roman soldiers were stationed on either side of the victim. The victim's back muscles were stretched tight above his head. The soldiers took turns whipping the victim from the side, striking the back, waist area, and legs with force. The whipping instruments, called the flagellum, consisted of a handle from which extended several leather throngs. Small pieces of bone, iron balls, or sharp shards were affixed to the end of the leather throng. Crucifixion was designed to inflict maximum suffering and death. Weakened by the scourging, the victim was thrown down on the crossbeams. Arms extended. The wounds on his back would have been caked with dirt, dust, and splinters. A nail being five or seven inches was hammered either between his two wrist bones or in his palms. The nail was strategically placed to sever the median nerve, causing excruciating pain and partial paralysis of the hand. Most renditions depict this by showing the victim's hand curled into a claw-like position. The victim was hoisted up, Searing pain would ensue as damaged nerves sent pain screaming throughout the arms and chest. This is just a a picture of the things that that Christ would have had to physically endure uh, and what he willfully subjected himself to. And as we'll discuss as well, the physical suffering is not where it, it ended. So as we turn here to the Gospel of Mark and we think about what Christ suffered, what he went through, and we'll talk about not just what he went through and in the humiliation of it all and the the mockery that he endured as well as, as Mark really focuses in on those things. But in all of that, who he was. In being subjected to all these things, who he was, he was treated like a common criminal, but he had done no wrong. In common, was certainly not anything of who he is or what he was. But he is the one who is the king, the king of the Jews, and the king of kings. As we turn here to Mark, 
Mark, also called John Mark, um, wrote this gospel, and and many argue that his main source for this gospel was the apostle Peter, and there's good reason to think that. We, We read in 1 Peter chapter 5, that when Peter was there in Rome writing to the churches in Asia Minor, that that Mark was with him. And if that's the case, if that's uh, his source, and maybe even at that time that he started writing this, this gospel, then it would seem that his readers then were those who were facing the persecution that Peter was writing through, and the persecution that was going on in Rome against Christians because of Nero, the emperor. And so Mark wrote and at least in this section of his gospel, reminds his readers how Christ also suffered for them. We see he begins his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, saying that what he wrote was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we see throughout the gospel of Mark that he's presenting Jesus for who he is. He is the Christ. He is the long-promised Messiah. He is the rightful King of Israel. And he is the Son of God. He is the one who is equal with God in the very essence of who he is, God. And we see these things as Mark shows his authority in his healings and his miracles, authority over the spiritual realm, the physical realm, his authority over all creation, as as the things we've been talking about on Wednesday nights. And as we pick up the text here in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15, we see Jesus has been arrested And he's been put on trial by the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And they charged him with blasphemy. And then they handed him over to the Roman governor, Pilate. Since the Jews themselves were not a free people and were ruled by Rome, and so they had no authority of themselves to execute capital punishment. And so they turned him over to Pilate with the charges of treason against Caesar for claiming to be the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate knew that these were trumped-up charges and that they were really bringing him before him as the governor because of their jealousy and hatred of Jesus. And as Jesus was in Pilate's custody, he was asked to observe the custom during the Jewish festivals of releasing a prisoner. And so he presents Jesus to the crowd and mocking Jesus, or maybe even trying to get a dig on the religious Jewish leaders, he asked them, should I release to you the king of the Jews? But the chief priest stirred the crowd against Jesus in favor of Barabbas being released instead. Barabbas, who was a criminal, who was justly arrested and imprisoned. And so what we see there then is that the guilty went free while the innocent was condemned. And that's really a picture of what happened that day in the courtroom of God. The innocent Son of God was condemned under the wrath of God. So I, the guilty sinner, and you who believe guilty sinners could go free. All who are trusting in Christ alone, that we can be forgiven. He was condemned in our place. And so as we approach our text here this evening, we see that it says that Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released to them Barabbas, and having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. 
And so then let's read our text here for this evening, Mark 15, again reading verses 16 through 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. And they put it on his head. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to be crucified. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So as we we look at this text here, again, starting in verse 16, we see that they led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. This palace is probably Herod's palace there in uh, in Jerusalem, where while Pilate was there in Jerusalem, was probably taking up headquarters for himself, uh, because this was a Jewish festival where many people, many pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem. And so the, the numbers of people there in the city were swelling uh, to a great number. And so to make sure there was no uh, rebellion or uprising, Pilate was there with his army to make sure everything stayed peaceful and calm. And so he probably made his headquarters there in Herod's palace. So they brought Jesus in, and, and clearly they would have brought him into this area that was large, maybe like a foyer or, or some other large room, where they could gather the other soldiers around. And again, the charge against Jesus was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And so surely the soldiers had heard of this, and, and what kind of person considers themselves a king? What kind of person, what kind of man lives as a peasant and yet, and yet says he is a king? They say he's not, he's not a man that's right in the head. And, and so what do wicked, evil men do to someone who's not right in the head? Well, they, they mock him, right? And they make fun of him. And that's what we see happen here, is they, they gather the whole battalion. Uh, the battalion would have been anywhere from two to 600 soldiers. And they continue to uh, mock Jesus. Jesus, who has already been scourged, and so he's already standing there, a weak and uh, shameful, bloody mess. And yet, they continue to beat him as they, they put a, a reed in his hand, as we read in Matthew, and 
Mark tells us here that they struck him on the head with it. They were spitting on him and continuing to strike him and bow down before him, pretending to pay homage as they, they mocked him. Before that, they, they figured, well, you know, if he's really a king, well, we should dress him like a king, right? And so they took one of the outer garments of the soldier's uniform, uh, which would have been a, a deep scarlet uh, or even purple, and they put it around him. And being a king, well, of course, then he needs a crown, right? And so they took from a, a thorn vine and, and, and twisted together a, a crown of thorns. And, and for sure, these thorns would not have been like something you'd find walking through Pennsylvania woods with the thickets and all of that, that uh, are these tiny little things that would barely break the skin before they fell apart. No, these would have been thick, long thorns. And reading how they treated Jesus here, uh, I don't think it would be a, a con- great conclusion to, uh, of a jump of, of thinking that they didn't just set it lightly on his head, but that they pushed it down deep into his scalp. Again, as they knelt before him, as they struck him and repeatedly spit on him, uh, the, as it describes here uh, how they treated him, the verbs that are used are verbs that indicate they continued to do these things. They're continual actions. They hailed him like they would hail Caesar. Hail, King of the Jews. They had this contempt for him, maybe because he was Jewish, and too, maybe because they saw him as, as a lunatic claiming to be a king. And so they showed him the amount of respect that they figured they should in mocking him and making fun of him. But there's irony in all this. As they hail him, king of the Jews, that's who he is. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. And instead of mocking him, what they really should have done was bow before him in true, genuine worship. And not only should these soldiers have truly bowed down before him, but the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council who handed him over to the Romans, should have bowed down before him. Pilate, instead of being judge over him, should have bowed down before him. And the truth of the matter is, the day either would or will come when they will bow down before him. Whether some of the soldiers in this life may have repented at some point, to bow before Christ as Lord, or whether in the day that'll come when every knee will bow and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. But they will bow one day. And the truth of the matter is, you and I all here this evening will all bow one day. Whether we bow now in this life, which is the time to bow while his grace and his mercy is offered that you bow to him in submission to his kingship over you, trusting in him alone for your salvation, to forgive you of all the wicked things that you have done in your life, every thought that you have had, every word out of your mouth, every act of lust and greed and bitterness and hatred. We all have earned his wrath. We have all rebelled against this king, and we all must bow before him. Bow now while he offers grace and forgiveness to you. But if you don't, you will bow one day. All will bow 
one day because this one there that we read of in the governor's headquarters, bloody and beaten, mocked and humiliated, he is the king. He is the one who deserves all glory and honor. He is the creator of all. And yet he willingly lowered himself to stand on trial under his creation under those who presumed authority over him. Again, the Sanhedrin and Pilate and even these soldiers. He treated him with such cruelty. He had to face the skewed justice of mankind and was treated as a rebel, as the worst of criminals. Because as he stood there, beaten and mocked, Standing there, what was facing him ahead was the punishment of the worst of criminals. A punishment that was set aside for those who committed treason or soldiers who committed mutiny. Or was used to conquer and subdue an unruly people. It was such an awful punishment and such an awful death that Roman citizens were not allowed to be put to death this way. And the Roman philosopher Cicero, he he said this about crucifixion, let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen, nay, not even near his thoughts or ears or eyes. Such a horrible way to die, even as I described it in the introduction to this message. Uh, The goal of crucifixion was to cause as much pain and suffering as possible for as long as possible. And oftentimes, a victim of crucifixion could last three days, even, in such agony and pain. And yet, this is what our Lord subjected himself to. To be treated like a worm. To be treated like the worst of criminals. In order to die in the place of criminals. To die in the place of those who have broken God's law those who really deserve to die. My friends, as we think of Jesus and all that he had gone through, the beatings that he took, as we think of him there in the the governor's headquarters and all that was ahead of him at that moment to face, as he was facing crucifixion, he suffered willingly He gave himself over. And the suffering that we see here, the suffering of his beatings and the mockery and the humiliation, the suffering that would come in the cross, that physical suffering is not where it ended. We read in Isaiah 53, verse 11, or verse 10. The prophet Isaiah looking ahead as a representative of Israel looking back on the suffering of Christ says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering of guilt. Christ willingly subjected himself to such pain and suffering to make himself a guilt offering. That the Lord, God the Father, would crush Jesus under his own wrath. That he would suffer the wrath of God in the place of sinners while he hung on the cross. He would suffer the wrath we deserve. 
Christ, the innocent, is humiliated. Christ, the innocent, suffers a criminal's death so that the guilty who believe on him could go free. My friends, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, you can know that he died so that you can go free. You can say that Christ suffered God's wrath for me. Because that is what he did. If you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, you can say Christ paid for me. Because that is what he did. And if you are saying that, Christ died for me, he suffered for me, he took the wrath for me, then the next thought should be, what should my response be? How can I show such gratitude and love for such love that has been shown to me? What would show my devotion to honor him who so loved me? See, because when we recognize that Christ subjected himself to such suffering in the place of sinners, taking the cross upon himself, taking the wrath of God upon himself. If we really believe and understand he truly died, how does that not affect us? How can we think on this and truly believe it and remain the same? It's like the song that we, we just sang. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And does. Should this not drive us to our knees before our king to truly worship him? Absolutely, it must. And if it doesn't, why? Do you, do you not truly believe that this is what he did? Do you not truly believe that it was for sins of, of all who would believe on him? That if you believe this was for you, do, do you truly believe? If you do, how can it not drive you to your knees? How can it not change who you are? Such love. And as we, we keep going here, we see that they, they take the robe off him and they lead him away to be crucified. Mark tells us here that they got someone else to take the cross for him. Criminals on the way to the place of crucifixion were uh, forced to carry the cross beam of their cross, paraded through a crowd to the place where they would be crucified. That cross beam could weigh up to 100 pounds, and for someone who's been scourged, uh, and, and in Jesus' case, had been repeatedly beaten since the night before, without sleep and so much loss of blood, how could he be really expected to carry that cross beam? In the Gospel of John, we see that he initially started carrying it, but again, he could not keep going with it. And so the soldiers got a man from the crowd, a man named Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was in northern Africa. And Mark gives us further indication of who this man is. He says that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And it's interesting. Uh, as uh, D.A. Carson points out that a man was not usually known by his sons. A man was usually known by who his father was. And so with that, on top of the fact that Mark, in verse 21, just kind of throws these names out there, seems to indicate that Mark's readers would have known who these men were. They would have been familiar with them at the least. 
So it's kind of like him saying, yeah, you, you know Alexander and Rufus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was their father that, that carried the crossbeam for Christ. And we don't know why these men were specifically known in the church. Maybe we can conclude that carrying Christ's crossbeam, Simon came to trust in Christ and taught his sons, and his sons became well-known within the church in their service. The Rufus that's mentioned here may even be the same Rufus that's mentioned in Romans chapter 16. But what we do know for sure, again, is that this man carried Jesus' crossbeam to the place of crucifixion. And verse 22 tells us that that place was Golgotha, which is an Aramaic word uh, for place of the skull, which is what Mark tells us. And the word Calvary means the same thing. And we don't know where this place was, where Golgotha was exactly. All, all we know is that it would have been uh, not far outside of Jerusalem's city limits. And then we see there, in verse 23, it says, And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Matthew tells us that he tasted it, and then when he did, he, he refused it. Now, some say this wine mixed with myrrh would have been like a narcotic to dull the pain, uh, to show mercy. But uh, I'm not sure of that. There's some argument. That could be the case. Um, but if we're thinking, okay, what was the point of crucifixion? To, to cause as much pain as possible for as long as possible. Uh, I don't know how much that fits in saying that. And there's many who point out that there's not really a whole lot of evidence to say that myrrh was used as a narcotic or even that it had those properties to be used that way. Uh, and, uh, and so, what could this have been? Well, myrrh was used to flavor expensive wine. And so this really could have been just the soldiers continuing to mock him. Hey, you're a king? Well, let's serve you up some wine here. And we see Jesus refusing their mockery. And then we come to verse 24. And we read in verse 24, just short and plain, and they crucified him. And of Jesus' crucifixion, that's all the details Mark gives us. Of this horrible event. And even as you read other ancient writings, many of them would not go into detail of the crucifixions that they spoke of. It was actually considered inappropriate to speak about crucifixions in the details because it was so horrible. What Mark does tell us is that they divided his clothing. Dividing the crucified's belongings among the soldiers was a common practice. And Mark speaks of it here as if he's pointing to Psalm 22, as if this is the fulfillment of that. Psalm 22 says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then verse 25 tells us they crucified Christ at the third hour, which would have been at 9 a.m. Verse 26 says, and, they, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. This would refer to the placard that the, the Romans hung on the criminal's neck when they were parading him through the crowds to the place of crucifixion. Uh, they paraded the person, um, one, for humiliation's sake. Usually the person was naked. Uh, many have argued maybe in the case of Jesus uh, for sensitivity towards the Jews. They didn't have him completely naked. But in any case, he would be paraded through the crowds to the place of crucifixion, and a placard 
with why he was being crucified would have been hung around his neck for all to see. Because it was there to be a warning. Listen, if you step out of line, if you are going to think about rebelling against Rome, this can be you next. And we see there that the charges against Jesus, why he was being crucified, was that he was the king of the Jews. It's written as if he's being crucified for being the king of the Jews. Which, again, is more irony. Because who is he? He is the king of the Jews. That's precisely who he is. He's the king of kings, the very God of the universe, who humbled himself in such great humility to die on a Roman cross. Dying as a criminal, though sinless. Dying a criminal's death with criminals on each side of him. Dying with criminals. We, we see that in verse 23. The English Standard Version here has it translated as robbers, but that word can also be translated as insurrectionists or rebels. And then the next verse says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Now, do you remember what they're referencing there? When Jesus said he would raise up the temple in three days? If you remember, then you might recognize that uh, they're inaccurate in their ridicule of him saying that. He told the religious leaders, you destroy the temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And what more, he didn't mean the temple where he chased out the money changers, or where they brought the sacrifices. What he meant when he said, you destroy the temple, was his own body. And that's exactly what they were doing when they handed him over to the Romans. They were destroying the temple of his body. But again, this is the one who is the king of the Jews. And he is such a king with such authority that not even death can keep him. He has such power as the king that death does not defeat him. He defeats death. This king, worthy of all glory and honor, devotion and obedience, he is a king over all. So much so that they may have destroyed the temple. They may have killed his body. But he raised it up again on the third day. And if he is such a king with such authority, can you see that he has authority over you as well? That you should bring yourself into alignment with his word. His word that says that you nor I are actually good within ourselves. We want to think that, right? We want to think, you know, I'm a good person, you know, I do my best, you know, and I try and look at all these good things I do. I serve other people. I give to this and that. But no, his word says that we're not good. His word says we're criminals, we're lawbreakers, we're sinners. We need to bring ourselves into alignment to his word because it's when we recognize that his word is true and his word is right and authoritative for our lives. And so that when we've disobeyed his word, we have sinned against him and committed treason against him. When we recognize that, then we can know that we can come and look to him 
for salvation and forgiveness. That we can come and find a right standing before God in him because of what he has done. He who died in our place. He who satisfied the wrath of God in our place. He who died for us but did not stay dead, but rose again. And now your risen king, with all authority in heaven and on earth, commands that you turn from your sin. Not that we become perfect in this life. We don't. But we recognize that he died to pay for my sin. We recognize our sin is an offense against his infinite holiness. And when we see what love, that he would come and humble himself to a Roman cross, that he would take such humiliation and ridicule and shame for us, that he would suffer under the wrath of God for us, when we see such love and we believe such love, how do we not love him in return? And if we love him, why do we want to continue in the things that are an offense against him? No, we don't. We, we turn from that. We hate our sin. We want to see our sin die in us. We turn from it and we put our faith in him and in him alone to save us. We trust in him and that is what he commands of us, to trust in him. And when we trust in him, we will be saved. That is the promise. That is the guarantee to trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. It is Christ who died to pay the price for our sin to save us and make us his own, to give you an eternity not under his wrath, but with him in his glory. And then he calls you, your king, calls you to follow him in obedience. That now that you are saved, now that you know that you are his, you obey him in all that you do. You follow him in baptism. You follow him in unity and in communion in his church. You live a life pursuing holiness, living for his glory in everything you do. Because you recognize he is your king. It's who he is. But those who refuse to obey him, who reject him as the only way to be saved, they continue in their hatred of him. Just as we see here in the text. We see the religious leaders continue to mock him. There in verses 30 and 31, it says, Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Again, here's more irony. Because he could save himself. He had the authority to save himself. He could have called 12 legions of angels. He could have wiped out with a word all of his jeers. But if he saved himself, no one would be saved. He came and he knew why he came. The king of heaven, the king of creation. He knew his mission to do his father's will. We read earlier in the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10 verse 45. Jesus said of himself, For even the son of man comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life as a ransom. He hung on the cross in ridicule and shame, being utterly humiliated. He would not retaliate. He would not save himself because he came not to serve himself, but to serve others, to give his life a ransom for many, for the many that he would save, for the many that he would bring to his father 
that he would forgive their sins for the many who would repent and believe upon him and him alone for salvation. He remained under all of the mockery and humility and pain and suffering for the many that he would save. And my friends, if you are trusting in him, if he has saved you, then you could sing that glorious song that says, For me, he died. For me, he lives. And everlasting life and light, he freely gives. He freely gives it because he purchased it for you and for me. He took on himself all we deserve. We deserve to be humiliated. We deserve to suffer, to be crushed under the wrath of God. But he was the ransom for us. And so my friends, if you know that he ransomed you, rejoice in that. Uh, we have a great reason to celebrate. We, we gather together and we celebrate that week after week, right? That's, that's why we're the church together. That's why we sing together and we look to his word together because he ransomed us. And we celebrate that every time we gather. We celebrate with everything we do for our king. And if you are not saved, I plead with you, trust in Christ and you will be saved. You will know this salvation for yourself. There is no other way. But the world around us may continue to hate him. As those around Jesus continued to hate him and jeer him and mock him. Again, we read there in verse 32. It says, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross so that we may see and believe. Now, they mockingly ask for proof. They've already had a lot of proof. In the three years of Jesus' ministry leading up to this moment, with all the power that he put on display in his miracles and the authority in which he preached, what more proof could one ask for? Proof was not the issue. But the fact that they were there with spiritually dead hearts refused to believe, refused to trust in him. And we see, too, Mark tells us that the criminals crucified with him mocked him that we do know one would eventually repent and trust in him. But the rest there that Mark tells us about continued in their hatred of the king. And we live in a world that continues in the hatred of their king. We live in a world that hates Jesus because it loves its darkness. And just as the world came against Jesus, we who follow Jesus may have the world come against us. Just as Mark's readers had the world coming against them, Mark's readers were suffering humiliation and shame and were being put to death. And so Mark writes to them and he reminds them of their Savior and how their Savior endured humility and ridicule and mockery and, mockery and was put to death for them so that they could be encouraged to remember, he, he suffered and died for me. I'll suffer and die for my king. And my friends, you and I sitting here, again, if we really believe, 
When the world comes against us, are we going to be able to stand and say, I know he suffered and died for me, so I can suffer and die for him? And even if we don't experience the weight of the world against us, how does it still affect how we live and what we do? That we would be willing to suffer and die for him who died for us. That we would be willing with such loyalty to follow him who is our king. Look how great he is. How glorious he is. Our great and awesome God would humble himself to a Roman cross, would die in our place, but he did not stay dead. He rose again. How glorious is he? He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of our devotion and obedience. He is worthy of our suffering and death, if that's what we're called to, because he is our king. And so if you know him as your king, if you are trusting in him for salvation, then we'll lift up our voices. We're going to sing again of that song of, of, of what he has done, of the power of the cross, of, of his great work. Let's sing with our whole hearts to our God and king. And again, if you're not trusting in him, if you're looking to your own works, or you're not sure about really who he is, I plead with you, look to him. Trust in him alone. Only he can save. Only he paid the price for sin. Trust in Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnbbc.com.